Welcome to Talk Lex, a podcast dedicated to common sense discussion of legal issues facing everyday people. Brought to you by Derazio Peterson. For more information, visit Deraziopeterson.com. Welcome to another episode of Talk Lex. Scott Peterson, Giovanna is here with me. Uh, by popular demand, we are back with a follow-up uh, with our key takeaways from the Gwyneth Paltrow trial. Um, when we last recorded, uh, it was prior to Gwyneth Paltrow taking the stand. Uh, the case has now gone to verdict and is over, and the public has moved on to bigger and better things, most notably uh, the indictment of former President Trump, which we may or may not get into today. But uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about some of the takeaways that we observed from watching the Gwyneth Paltrow trial, uh, and in particular as they relate to our practice and trial practice and the legal system in general. So without further ado, um, number one takeaway, likability and believability are the key factors in a lawsuit. Uh, and why don't you give a little bit of context into this? I say this all the time. I've repeated it on this podcast multiple times, and I'll tell anyone who will listen that I personally believe that this is the most important thing in a trial um, because a trial is determined by a jury of people who have never met any of the parties before. So uh, what do you think? So I think what's what's kind of a little bit funny about this case, and I think when we talk about likability, a lot of it, what we mean is likability at trial in front of a jury. And sometimes you have some opportunities along the way to test that um, either by your own interactions with your client as well as how your client does in a deposition. But this case was sort of interesting because potentially both of the parties were not particularly likable or relatable to the average person. Um, I'll just say that I was obsessed with everything about this, and I think it is so funny, and I appreciate every single meme that has gone onto the internet about it, um, especially, you know, Gwyneth's uh, major damages being losing a half a day of skiing which I think her lawyer tried to rehabilitate in his closing argument where he said really it was that their trip, which was intended to sort of blend two families, uh, was disrupted. And that was really you know, what her damages are and why she deserved her symbolic dollar. Um, but you know, she is not a particularly relatable person. She's obviously very wealthy. Um, I thought she had kind of a funny and meaning funny in a different sort of good way, way of manner of speaking that I think could potentially be, you know, off putting or not to people. Um, and, and the plaintiff was kind of kooky in his own, uh, answers to questions, even from his own lawyers. Um, you know, one of his big elements of damages was not being able to enjoy wine tastings anymore. So this whole thing kind of devolved into sort of like a white Lotus, dark comedy parody of rich people sort of thing that, that I don't think we were alone in getting a lot of entertainment value from. I agree. I think she was able to walk that line really successfully of showing a jury that she was, and she's an actor, so God only knows how much of this was real, but coming across as both somewhat concerned, but also uh, 
somewhat amused with this whole process. And obviously that's easier said than done. And um, it doesn't apply in every case. There are cases where, you know, it's a really, really serious uh, set of facts where the injuries are devastating or someone has died. This was not that kind of a case. Um, and so she was able to achieve that here. Um, her her responses, a lot of them seemed very sort of dry, you know, somewhat, I don't want to say sarcastic, but um, she doesn't get away with that if the, the person on the other side died, right? She got away with it because the person was there and he was also kind of, like you said, this sort of strangely, strangely sort of unsympathetic maybe person. So uh, she was able to walk that line here. I don't know that she otherwise would be able to do that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, ultimately, this was not, you know, he had some, you know, proof that he was putting forward of, of his injuries. But yeah, this was not a situation where a celebrity is accused of, you know, taking someone's life in some gross negligence type of way. I mean, the bottom line is this is two people at a luxury ski resort who banged into each other. And, you know, not exactly the most sympathetic situation in the whole world. And we talked about it in the first podcast. I mean, we we are plaintiff's lawyers. This is the type of work that we do. Maybe that's why we were so sort of, you know, like enjoying the fact that a case like this made it onto such a huge platform. But, you know, I don't know that this is a case that I ever would have taken, regardless of how rich and famous um, or how much, you know, the deep pockets there were on the other side of it, because it's it's still surprising to me that it even made it to this point because I think the law is not really favorable to there being any recourse in, you know, a ski accident. All right. Takeaway number two, uh, the demeanor and actions of the lawyers probably matter more than maybe you think. Um, and my, I noticed a couple of takeaways on the lawyers in this case. I was not particularly impressed with either of them, <laughs> frankly, but um, I, the the lawyer for the plaintiff uh, committed, I, I or I want to say, did not approach the cross examination of Gwyneth Paltrow uh, in a way that I think is probably appropriate, or that you're really taught how to cross examine a witness. When you cross examine a witness, the idea is that you are the focal point. You are taking attention away from the witness. You are getting in, you are hitting your points, you are asking questions that you, questions that you already know the answer to, and you're controlling the narrative, right? Um, and my observation of the cross-examination was basically exactly the opposite. I actually thought Gwyneth Paltrow did an exceptional job of controlling the cross-examination. Um, and she had one particular sort of back and forth that's been all over the internet where um, the lawyer was asking her about you know, using the F word and, you know, Gwyneth Pal- and Paltrow's response was very sort of dry, kind of funny and sort of like almost laughing at the way the lawyer asked the question. And between that and the lawyer sort of fawning all over Paltrow, complimenting her shoes and, and, and all that sort of thing, I think she probably lost uh, any of the control that you, you normally want to have over a, a witness. Obviously, if it's a celebrity, it's something of a different situation, I guess. But um, that is not an effective way, I don't think, to to get control of the narrative or control of the witness. Yeah, I mean, before I took more of a deep dive into the trial, I saw one exchange between the lawyer and Gwyneth Paltrow about um, how tall she is and how... Um, 
you know, the, how the lawyer has to wear, you know, five inch heels in order to be anywhere near that tall. And then Gwyneth is complimenting her shoes. When I was sort of looking at this in a very, uh, superficial way, I actually thought that that was her lawyer, um, at first because they, she had tried to develop, I'm not sure why this kind of witty, um, girlfriend kind of rapport with her. Um, but then, you know, 10 seconds later is, telling the judge that, you know, Gwyneth is saying something that is contrary to her deposition testimony and sort of trying to take a hard line. So I thought that was a little bit, you know, I don't know how effective it is to try to, in a trial to be, you know, kind of developing some sort of witty banter with the the opposing witness that doesn't really, you know, I don't know how that went over. And I think like Scott said, it gave, Gwyneth an opportunity to kind of come off like a little bit endearing and funny. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the only time that I think you would want to approach a witness that way is if you thought that by sort of being nice and friendly with them, you were going to get them to open up and say something that they shouldn't. But in this scenario, it's exactly what you said. I mean, it goes back to the likability question. It's like, by allowing her to control and engage in this banter, you're making her more relatable to the jury, more likable to the jury. They're laughing. That's exactly the opposite of what you want. You know, you you need her to come off either aloof or, you know, elitist, or you need her to come off in a way that the jury looks at her and says, you know what, I, we don't like this person. And so I think that was an ineffective approach. On the other side of the coin, I I only saw a couple of clips of the uh, of Gwyneth Paltrow's lawyer. And the one I saw, he was he was sort of stumbling over um, some kind of a presentation on a screen. Uh, and again, it, it was it, it sort of an aw shucks kind of approach, which, you know, I mean, I, I suppose that's a that's a definitely a technique that people use. Um, I'm not quite sure how effective it is when you're in this type of a courtroom setting. Um, obviously, it didn't work. Uh, you know, or maybe I mean, obviously it did work. I suppose they, they won. Yeah. I mean, Uh, it may have ultimately worked for them for the jury because she must've made, I think probably either a strategic decision or there was insurance involved, no matter how rich she is, because her lawyers were like a park city, Utah law firm. She did not come in with, you know, some Hollywood big guns, um, you know, like we saw, I mean, I, I think this trial was a much more um, serious subject matter, but like the Johnny Depp trial was probably the most recent other celebrity trial that blew up. Um, and I think that was much more sort of, you know, they came in with their sort of like L.A. celebrity, you know, beautiful lawyers. And it was a little bit different. Um, and that appeared to have worked in his favor in that particular case. But um in this case, it probably was good that they kind of, you know, didn't necessarily take that um, tactic. I just, you know, going back to the plaintiff's lawyers, I think they they kind of lost control of their own client. Also, um, he started they they actually cut their own client off because he 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 referenced some sort of conspiracy theory, which is like <laughs> not I like you know as people who <clears throat> I think all plaintiffs' lawyers know, or any lawyer who represents you know their clients in those situations knows that every once in a while your client might come out with something where you're like, you know, trying to give them like the hatchet. But, um, I thought that was a little funny too. 
there's a there's a saying in the legal profession that you never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to um, in a courtroom. And that's 100 percent true, both on cross-examination, but also with your client, because, you know, you prior to a trial, you you run through the direct testimony with your client in a way that you know what the answers are going to be before you even ask the questions. So uh, to see someone go off the rails, you know, that's not surprising. It happens all the time. Um People are people, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually think your point about the the local lawyers is is 100 correct. I think that was a really smart strategic move because if you roll in there with, um, you know, some big ticket LA lawyer, uh, and you know, you get the wrong jury, the case is over before it starts probably. But um, all right, uh, takeaway number three, and this is 100 percent true. Uh, be careful what you wish for. You know, I saying that I, I like to use with the kids and with clients is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Um, and I think that holds true in this case for the plaintiff um, who brought the lawsuit. Uh, and why don't you explain why that is? Yeah, I think when you bring a lawsuit and this is how I think we approach them with our clients, you have to be prepared to take it all the way. And as a lawyer, you have to be prepared to stand by your client all the way. And as the client, you have to be prepared to basically open up every sort of facet of your life to scrutiny. Um, And you have to be prepared to do that. Now, is it possible that in this situation, there was just a strategic misfire of, I'm going to bring this lawsuit against a celebrity and they're going to settle it right away. Um, And she kind of called their bluff and took it all the way and won. Um, That might be what happened. Um, But it seems a little bit clear to me from the interviews that the plaintiff gave after the trial that he regretted um, this whole fiasco that it turned into and that he was embarrassed to be infamous on the Internet for the rest of his life. Um, And I think that, you know, a couple of the things that came up in the trial are things that we talk to clients about as well, because when you are a plaintiff, your life becomes an open book. So you say, so so this plaintiff said that this accident caused him to have problems with his relationships, all these medical issues, and that, you know, basically it ruined his life. Well, now you have to test all of those things. So he had one of his children testified against him. Um, You know, this was like not ideal, obviously, of course, is actually sort of terrible. Um, You know, they poked a lot of holes into whether he had any real medical problems. Um, Your social media becomes fair game. So when you say, oh, my life is over, and then there's pictures of you traveling the world, this is a problem for you. So all of these things not only poke holes in what your potential damages could be in a case even where the liability is strong, but in a situation like this, I think ended up probably seriously undermining his credibility because ultimately the jury in this case had to decide, sort of aside from a legal question, which, you know, I guess I'm beating a dead horse. I still don't know that there was a legal basis for liability in this situation, regardless of whose version of it they believed. But ultimately, they had to decide how this accident went down. And that was a credibility determination between the two of them. So when he says, my life is ruined, and it really isn't, and he says, you ruined my relationships with my kids, and your kids come in and say, no, they were already ruined, you don't look like a very credible person. 
Yeah, I have I have two thoughts on this. Um, number one is lots of our clients in personal injury cases and employment discrimination cases are professionals. Um, you know, oftentimes they're you know active in their communities, they're well known, and it's it's very common for us to have that conversation about. You know, look, there are multiple ways to approach any of these situations and filing a, a lawsuit that is public is only one of them. Uh, and a lot of times our clients opt to try to resolve things more quietly because they don't want to risk exactly what happened here. Now, this is obviously a huge, massive scale, but it happens on a smaller scale, too. And you get your the case gets in the paper and then all of a sudden it goes on social media and it blows up. Um this was obviously very foreseeable uh, once they filed the lawsuit. So I, I have to think that they at least have the conversation. If they didn't, they should have about what what are the implications here. And we always talk to clients as well about, you know, just what you, Giovanna said, which is, you know, once you file this, you're you're an open book now. And um, the lesson, the takeaway is you have to think two or three steps down the line before you take any of these actions because of the consequences. Um, but the other takeaway is what you said about social media, which is once you file a lawsuit, you're an open book. And any, we always tell clients to stop posting on social media, but uh, anything that's been posted in the past will come back and hurt you. You know, And that happens all the time. People make claims about uh, you know, the severity of their injuries and somebody pulls up a picture of them dancing at a wedding or traveling and you know, even if it's unrelated, it still gets used against them. And it's fodder for the other side to say, well, come on, you know, this isn't really as bad as you're saying it is. And it hurts your credibility. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, again, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. Not that this person shouldn't have brought the case, but it sounds like he's regretting it at this point. Um, and the final takeaway is experts matter sometimes. And apparently in this case, they did. Um, and uh, why don't you talk about <laughs> the expert in this case and why why it was important and, and the role that they play? Well, I think this, you know, experts matter, but I think this kind of fell under the heading when we were talking about it before of just juries kind of being unpredictable. So really any trial is a little bit of a roll of the dice because they interviewed um, one of the jurors afterwards, and she said that she went back and forth multiple times throughout the trial as to who she believed. But ultimately, one of the things that tipped the scales for her was the Gwyneth Paltrow's expert. So they had um, basically a ski expert, which I told uh, Scott is probably our son's ideal. I, I was like, I didn't realize this was a career, but this sounds like a great job for our son, yeah. ski expert. Um, so ultimately it was the expert who tipped the scales, um, at least for this particular juror, um, in favor of Gwyneth Paltrow when she really wasn't sure, uh, who she believed as between the parties, but she found the expert to be credible in his breakdown of how this accident went down. And, and that was a deciding factor for her. So you really never know, um, you know, what's going to be the thing that, uh, you know, tips the scales one way or the other. A hundred percent true. Uh, we've said before, I've talked before about some of my stories with jurors and the things that they hold on to and the things that they find important and the things that you think they're going to find important that they don't. Um, experts are actually one of the more predictable things. You know, you put an expert in a trial, you expect that the jury might believe him or her. Um, you know, that's better than them saying that they 
you know, didn't like her glasses, the Jeffrey Dahmer glasses from the Netflix show. Um, <laughs> you know, so, but yeah, juries are very unpredictable. It's the reason why most cases don't go to trial, um, especially civil cases. You know, it's um, the statistics are that less than 10% go to trial. One of the reasons is that there's this measure of unpredictability because you never know what people are going to do. Uh, so that's what happened here. All right. Um, so that covers the Gwyneth Paltrow trial. Um, next, next celebrity trial, you can be rest assured that we'll be here with uh, breaking commentary. Um, we, which, of course, relates to the historic indictment of Donald Trump uh, in New York City for uh, crimes relating to hush money payments made by his lawyer, Michael Cohen, to adult film star Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election. Why is this a misleading headline? Because nobody understands what exactly is going on. I agree. I mean, at first, when this all came out, I couldn't figure out if he, what he was being accused of that was illegal in the sense of paying her um any hush money because they kept they kept framing it sort of in that way. Um, you know, ultimately, I understand at this point that it's really some kind of campaign finance falsification of business records sort of issue. Mm -hmm. um, so basically what he's being accused of is falsifying business records to conceal the payments, including one to his former attorney, Michael Cohen, that was paid to Stormy Daniels to sort of squash this story that was going to be in a tabloid. Um, and by when they falsified those records, basically the indictment is accusing him of that being sort of part of a scheme to conceal relevant information from the voting public during the 2016 presidential election. However, as far as I know, they have not actually listed out at this point what election laws they're saying were violated by doing that. I personally find it confusing. Maybe somebody in the criminal law slash election law realm understands this a little bit more, but I do think that there are people out there on sort of both sides of this who are not quite exactly sure um, fully what he's being accused of and how this is all going to shake out and whether this is going to somehow, you know, help him or harm him. I, I would guess at the rate like he's been going in life in general is that this will probably help him somehow. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of Trump, uh, but <laughs> the guy is tough on. And thus far, this, this particular indictment does not seem to be hurting him. I don't know what, whether there are coming indictments and, you know, we'll leave that to, you know, when it happens. The big loser here, of course, is Michael Cohen, because come to find out he, <laughs> he had to pay taxes on the payments that he made. So if you're a lawyer and you make a payment on be, uh, you know, on behalf of a client and the client reimbursed you for it, that wouldn't be income. But the way that they classified this, and this is part of the problem, I think, for them, uh, Cohen made the payments. Had he been just reimbursed by Trump, you know, it's a wash. But instead, he creates this invoice for legal services to Trump and ends up getting close to $200,000 reimbursed, but he has to call it legal expenses 
And so what? He probably paid forty or fifty thousand dollars in taxes. Yeah. And he lost his his legal credibility. I think he lost his law Did he license. Go to jail? <laughs> yeah, and he went Did to jail. He go to jail? So. Well, I find this whole thing to be yeah, right. Because I mean, you know, love him or hate him, Donald Trump, I think, does have a history of not being particularly loyal to the people around him. So the fact that this Michael Cohen just got completely not only like criminally, you know, charged with this whole fiasco, but also had to pay taxes on this. So they said they can't even <laughs> accuse them of any sort of tax fraud because. The, the tax consequences actually worked out in favor of the government from what I can see, but it's the falsification that Trump did on his end to, I guess, make this some sort of legitimate use of campaign funds. Yeah. I don't know. The yeah. whole thing, the whole thing is very bizarre and I, I'm sure that he will, I, I don't know. I, I would be surprised how this will work out. I don't know. One thing's for sure is that lots of people on both sides are going to be elated, angry, and everything in between. And most most everyone is not really going to understand what's happening here because it it's fairly convoluted. So um, hopefully cooler heads will prevail across the board, let the system play out, let the process play out, and just see what happens. Um, any other comments, questions? We don't have any questions. Any other comments this week? No. Okay, that'll wrap it for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, as always, if you have questions, hit us up on Instagram at TalkLex Podcast. Uh, visit our website at DorazioPeterson.com or visit our Dorazio Peterson Instagram at Dorazio Peterson. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon.